0: welcome to another episode of FinTech Recap. Uh, My name is Alex Johnson. I am a director of research at Cornerstone Advisors and the creator of the FinTech Takes newsletter. Joining me as he always does is Jason Mikula, the creator of the wonderful FinTech Business Weekly newsletter. Jason, how are you? I am uh, doing well. The sun is out for a rare change of pace here in uh, in the
1: Netherlands. It was only out, I think, 44 hours in all of January, so I shouldn't <laughs> really be outside right now, but uh, I'm here with you guys. Uh, and we have uh, the famous Lex of Consensus, head economist and founder of the Fintech Blueprint newsletter and podcast joining us. Uh, Lex, how are you today? I'm doing well.
2: Thanks. Uh, thanks for having me. High expectations uh, in London. There is no sun, uh, so I feel how uh, I, f- I, f- I feel uh, what you're going through as well.
0: Oh man! Well, to round out the the weather misery conversation, I'm broadcasting from Bozeman, Montana, where it was negative ten degrees. This. <laughs> yeah. So,
2: um, this this is actually the situation with the United States, right? And the rest of the world. It's like. Um, it's, it's sort of complaining about things, you know, in the United States. It's like, uh, well, we've had um, we've had uh, global fires across most of the West. And then uh, <laughs> all of the East is frozen in a deep glacier. The killer bees have been released uh, and have, uh, you know, de- de- destroyed all of Florida. Uh, and also the undead have come out. And it's like, well, it's it's sort of late. It's it's raining in London a little bit.
0: Yeah. <laughs> That's right. Exactly. and we, we have a we have an upbeat can do attitude despite all of that. So, uh, <laughs> the podcast the podcast moves on despite uh, despite the apocalypse creeping near. So, um, as listeners of this podcast now, I think understand the goal that we have is just to sort of recap uh, what's been happening in fintech over the last uh, month or so, and. Um, you know we're thrilled to be joined by Lex because he has forgotten more about uh, fintech, certainly, and crypto in particular than Jason and I will ever know. So we're going to definitely uh, lean on his expertise for some of these topics that we're uh, interested in and that we've been looking at over the last month that maybe we don't fully understand. So um, Really, really glad to have Lex joining us. Uh, We're going to bounce around a few topics uh, that we're each kind of fascinated by. And to kick us off, um, I am going to start us with uh, one of the bigger acquisitions um, over the last month, and really one of the bigger acquisitions in a while in the fintech space, which was UBS, uh, the Swiss bank, uh, acquiring Wealthfront, the robo-advisor for $1.4 billion in cash. And um, Lex, I know you wrote about this a little bit. Uh, Jason, I know you've been looking at this deal as well. You know, it's interesting, you know, from my perspective, and I I wrote this in my newsletter just very briefly, um, this does in a lot of ways feel like we're kind of turning a page uh, in fintech. Um, It's a little hard to remember today, but Uh, five to seven years ago, uh, robo advising was very much maybe the hot topic in fintech and obviously Wealthfront and Betterment and a few others were sort of gaining traction quickly and were really sort of shaking up the, the wealth management market, um, You know, incumbents were sort of trying to figure out how to respond and, you know, wealth uh, management was sort of really focused on robo advising and that became kind of the the feature du jour for incumbents and the um, sort of new startup wedge for a lot of companies getting into fintech. Fast forward, and I think what I've noticed is that um, while there have been a couple of big Winners so far in the robo advising space, obviously, Wealthfront and Betterment being kind of the two prominent examples. I don't think we've seen necessarily this model sort of take hold as sort of a standalone business quite the way maybe we thought. And I know there's been a lot written about kind of the economics and the business model uh, for robo advising and how it it makes it a little tough to sort of uh, generate massive profits when you're operating on that uh, quarter of a percent fee for assets under management. So I don't know. I mean, Jason, maybe you can kind of start. What were your sort of key takeaways from this acquisition? How were, How are were you looking at it?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I think there are a couple of different narratives that this fits into. And one of them is certainly the one um, you sort of ran through, which is, you know, if you think back to sort of FinTech 1.0, so call it, you know, 20, 2015, you know, six, seven years ago, the, the hot commodities were, you know, getting loans online. Uh, so you're like Lending Club, on deck, what have you, um, and robo-advisory. And, and it was really kind of a... Cutting edge, bordering on even, I might say, like controversial space or idea that you would have, you know, an al- an algorithmically determined portfolio, and you know, fast forward to you know today or the last you know couple of years. And, you know, I feel like I'm ripping off Ron Schefflin when I see this, but it's like the, is this a, you know, is this a feature or is this a company question?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and you have seen most of the, you know, establishment brokerages or establishment wealth managers, you know, offer some version of this feature, either homegrown or uh, through some sort of acquisition. Um, and you've seen some, you know, other developments in the space that I would argue sort of, you uh, Undermine some of the attractiveness of it, right? I mean, Acorns is not specifically a robo advisor, but it you know its uh, SPAC sort of fizzled out, which we talked about uh, last month on this show. Um, and flying a bit under the radar, my uh, my old employer Goldman introduced uh, essentially a robo advisor under its Marcus brand, uh, which I've not heard any peep of either in press coverage or in its quarterly earnings, as far as you know what that has managed to. Uh, attract to the Marcus business as far as AUM or revenue. Um, I do know, Lex, that you've written a lot about this space. So I'm I'm kind of curious to hear, you know, if that narrative resonates with you, if you think it's a business model challenge, if you think it's a product market fit challenge, like what what is your view on sort of this acquisition and the wider story it, it might tell us?
2: There's there's so many stories around it. Um, I'm gonna try not to fall into a rabbit hole. You know, so robo advice is uh, very dear to my heart because I started um, a robo advice company in 2009 and and did that up until about 2015 2016, um, which turned into Advisor Engine, like a, a wealth tech platform for RAAs that uh, Franklin Templeton ended up buying and. You know, I remember uh, sort of my introduction to fintech was staring at, oh, Ching is turning into Wealthfront by copying Betterment and Betterment's getting out of savings by starting to go into this wealth management positioning. Um, And I think the first thing to do is just to acknowledge that we're in a schizophrenic and psychotic place when we look at like a one and a half billion dollar exit and say that's small peanuts you know like <laughs> poor wealth front what a crap exit to a boring company right um I say that sarcastically because obviously 10 years 10 years 1.4 billion 140 million per year not too bad in terms of value creation. so I think it is and and by traditional metrics, the AUM that UBS bought is still two to three times more expensive than if they were to just, um, you know, buy by traditional RAA, and then maybe five to ten times more expensive if you consider um, the the revenue generating capability. So it's still kind of an expensive deal, um, and I think it speaks more to. The story of UBS uh, trying to build their own robo-advisor, then partnering with SigFig, selling their own robo-advisor to SigFig, now buying Wealthfront, it speaks to UBS's kind of interest in the space and their commitment. And I think that's a deeper reflection for me than like the the, the fundamentals of Wealthfront. The second thing to say about it is that um, companies around that time, like 2012-ish, um, we all thought in our niches, so we thought here's a, a wealth management, a digital wealth management business. Here's, like you said, uh, Jason, a digital lending business. Here's a payments business. Here's, um, if you're in Europe, then it's here's the the neobanking business. And of course, all that has smushed together and then embedded finance, blah, blah, blah. So um, the I think one of the things that companies like Wealthfront couldn't have and didn't expect is just the melding together of the fintech bundle and the melding together of all of the various products into these sort of, um, failed attempts, uh, at a super app. So I think that's number two, that is is sort of, it has nothing to do really in my mind with kind of like incremental investment economics and much more with the, the oxygen for your one-stop shop financial app is one by, um, Cash App and Coinbase and Robinhood, um, it's not won by Wealthfront for a bunch of other deeper reasons, you know. And then finally, uh, and I'm sure we'll transition into this, is like Wealthfront is it's what is it selling, right? It's it's selling traditional financial products, and it has a digital interface, so it's selling traditional products in a new place, in a in a beautiful new place, but it's. I overuse this analogy, but Spotify for CD-ROMs, you know, it's Spotify for <laughs> CD-ROMs makes no sense. Yeah, right, um, right. And so I think we now have a step function with non-traditional financial products with, uh, you know, de- decentralized or blockchain-based financial products, which are much more digitally native. And I think that's like, that's just a structural change that um, a company like Wealthfront, I don't think, was was able to maneuver.
1: I think that makes a lot of sense, and I mean, it, it, part of part of the um, positioning I've sort of heard about this acquisition was it was a way for UBS to sort of get exposure in its wealth management business to call it a uh, younger millennials and Gen Z who are sort of teed up to come into an enormous amount of wealth, you know, as baby boomers uh, to put it bluntly, pass away and, and pass on that wealth. Um, but, you know, in line with what you just said, Lex, it makes me wonder, you know, is this the right strategy to uh, sort of begin building relationships with that next generation who needs that wealth management advice? And in the, in the Marcus play um, with its robo is, is very similar to the idea that at the bottom end, you know, sub uh, whatever, a million AUM or 5 million AUM, you know, we're going to give you a robo and then transition you into, you know, presumably more expensive uh, human advice, when you reach a, a certain amount of wealth, and, uh, and and we can sort of sort of transition to the next topic around the sort of assets and uh, digitally native investments that that you referred to, but it kind of makes me wonder: is is UBS almost looking in the rearview mirror uh, and and enacting a strategy that's um, you know not necessarily going to serve them well for what they're trying to achieve?
2: Um. Happy, happy to take that, Alex. Also happy to yield some ground. No, it, it's all it's all you,
0: Lex. <laughs>
2: <it>. <laughs> okay, um, so look, um, there are different versions of the world, and we don't know how it's all going to play out. Uh, the versions of the paths are going to happen with some probability, each one, right? So there is a path in which um, crypto assets are this big grift on you know, an, a destabilized world. And if only we could get our regulations in place, and if only we could shore up our protections, you know, we would be safe from all of these. Uh, Elizabeth Warren had the the fantastic turn of phrase, you know, shadowy super hackers, which by the way, are just like 16 year olds uh, on Twitter. <laughs> uh, I'm, w- of which I'm terrified. They're very, I'm triggered all the time by 16 year olds. Um, you know, and and so there's a version of the world where, like, oh, this stuff is scary and it's wrong, and look at how volatile it is. In any way, what is it backed by, and what are the fundamentals? It, there's a there's a chance that is that is something that is true. Um, and then, of course, there's the other um, there's there's the other path, which is pretty much all financial infrastructure. Is junk. I mean, it's hard to be kind to anybody to be to be honest. Maybe, um, maybe the large uh, capital markets, you know, the equity capital markets, the big exchanges, and uh, you know, ICE and and the, the Chicago exchanges, like they have good tech. Um, but things like core banking or portfolio management and financial advice or the big underwriting systems um, uh, that that everybody sits on and And even the even the payment rails, um certainly the core payment rails, they're all janky technology. And like maybe that matters. Maybe it doesn't matter. Uh, I'm the type of person that thinks that it matters a lot. Uh, and so when I see a new technology that has kind of like a ten x improvement uh, that it delivers, which in this case is you know the 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 movement of value with, the network validating the the source of the information uh through computation and and mathematical consensus when, when i see a technology like that and then i see financial software being built on it you know a different narrative is just we have a new computing platform and that computing platform similar to the evolution of mainframe to desktop to laptop to cloud to mobile you know maybe this new computing platform to decentralized blockchain network can host financial software that is more modern, that is more performant, and that might change industry structure. But it might manufacture financial instruments that are a much better fit for, you know, the the world that we live today. And there's lots and lots of evidence why, you know, why and how decentralized finance functions and how it's expanding and deepening and so on. You know, and so that's that's kind of version of the world number two. And then there's a third version of the world which I've been coming around to as I've become more radicalized, and that is um actually finance is not a source of the economy the economy is the source for financial services so if you have an, an economy where people do stuff you know finance just grows like a tumor on it and i you know i'm, I'm rhetorical about that specifically cuz cuz finance is sometimes sort of gets gets quite corrupt you know so finance grows out of people doing something productive and then on top of that you have sort of risk shifting and time preferences and so on and so um, it appears to me that underneath uh, uh, the sort of decentralized finance stuff that we're seeing, it's more what what is more interesting is this idea of like are we building is there a different internet that is emerging? Is there a different architecture for um, information, data and value in, that, that is different from, you know, you give me your attention, I give you dopamine, and I sell you some ads. And I think that's that's a fundamental shift, and obviously a big platform shift. And the financial services and the economics that kind of grow out of that become uh, even even more complex and profound. So those three paths they're they're all possible. Um, and then if if you have that sort of fundamental story in your mind, you have to probability weight it, and you can look at market volatility. Um, you know you can look at this year bitcoin and ether both down whatever it is 20 30 40% um you can look at individual token prices the long tail of tokens can be down 40 50 60 70% you know but but so are so is money lion um so are you know netflix and twilio aren't aren't doing that well either and so I have a fairly blase interpretation of the market volatility in crypto largely because I have a much stronger fundamental thesis. Uh, but I'm also very I'm, I'm biased and I'm radicalized based on where I sit in the industry.
0: Yeah, I uh, I think um, Jason, I'm starting to be able to see the matrix just a little bit listening to Lex talk. So this has been awesome, and I, I think the you teed up the next topic we wanted to talk about really really well. Jason, do you want to introduce sort of the the new financial infrastructure stuff that you were seeing kind of built on on crypto? Yeah, I mean, I think
1: this reveals uh, probably my my bias towards call it consumer facing apps, but it does um, connect the dots with what Lex was just talking about, which is uh, call it emerging infrastructure, replacing or augmenting the janky infrastructure, which I love that you use that word um, of the past. And, and, you know, we've seen multiple signs of this in recent weeks uh including paypal uh which is rumored to be working on its own stablecoin it hasn't really explained why but i think for people in sort of payments businesses uh they can perhaps see some other writing on the wall there and cash app adding support for the bitcoin lightning network uh, so i'm wondering lex if we can get you to explain what the lightning network is for folks who are listening who may not be familiar and why it's important Uh, And then we can sort of hypothesize, you know, what the addition of this to functionality to cash app may portend, particularly, you know, as uh, as Jack has very clearly gone sort of all in on crypto and and specifically uh, Bitcoin as part of the business plan, strategic plan for the various business units that make up uh, block formerly known as Square.
2: I think the jack question is really interesting and because because of exactly how he's navigating that journey into the crypto world um is unusual it is not what most people would have expected in the industry and so i think that's definitely worth a little bit of meditation you know, just to reflect on the stable coin piece, I mean, the re- a stable coin, uh, there's some good other words for it. Um, I like to use the word cash equivalents because, uh, people seem to understand what a cash equivalent is. Uh, you can think of it as a money market fund. Uh, you can think of it as a crypto dollar, kind of like a Euro dollar, but a crypto dollar, you know, and so there's lots of analogies of these things in prior, um, prior financial cycles and and the reason you want to be a provider of the the cash equivalent is because you get to earn interest on it and it's as simple as that you know if you look through uh circles uh spac filings you'll see you know here's 30 billion dollars worth of USDC here's 100 million dollars worth of interest if we can get USDC to be 500 billion dollars then our valuation is x you know so i think that um it's surprising to me just how controversial this stuff uh, uh, feels to people. Um, but if you drop the idea that these are, that stable coins are for payments, like for buying sandwiches, and you think of them as the cash and equivalent allocation side of a portfolio, things start to uh, make a little bit more sense. So that's kind of number one. And then on the the second point, the cash app point, um, so depending on how familiar our listeners are with, um, uh, with with blockchain and crypto, I think there's there's different things to say. The first is just like the word crypto. So um, the word crypto reminds me of that show from the 90s, Tales from the Crypt. Uh, and, and that's like, that's not good. That's scary. Um, and, you know, people have negative reactions to the word. But what the word stands for is cryptography. And cryptography is the little... Lock in your browser uh, in the left corner next to the address of the URL. Right, like y- you have an encrypted web page, and that is why you trust it. If the web page is not encrypted, you shouldn't trust it because it might access, you know, your computer or your data might not be safe and so on. Right. So encryption is a way of making something safe. And in fact, World War II was won uh, through encryption technology. Whoever could decrypt the other side's, um, you know, secret messages ended up. Um, on ended up knowing the plan of the other side and so crypto is the application of encryption to information in such a way that anybody participating in a network can agree on what is the timeline of that network like what is the single truth what is the 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 history the line of history of what's happened and that can apply to payments uh you know the, the line of history for a particular um series of transactions, or it could apply to art markets or whatever you like. And so, um, you know, the mag- the first piece of magic is just being able to have uh, a source of truth that you you don't ever reconcile because the reconciliation happens algorithmically endemic to the network. Um, and then you can use that network to transfer value around. And the, one of the first things you can put on it is Bitcoin, right? So Bitcoin does this natively to itself. Um, and is the largest of these networks, and therefore is likely the most truthful. like the 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 quality, it's it's the least prone to be attacked because it is so big. Um, it is the hardest to attack and overwhelm and sort of make make not true. And I think for Jack, um, that holds a really strong appeal. It's called people say things like censorship resistance, which which just means that, like, you know, if the Chinese government wanted to buy a bunch of uh, Bitcoin miners and put them inside of hydroelectric dams, they they still might have trouble blowing up the network. You know, it's resistant to um, an attack by by sovereign. And there's lots of reasons why people like that. There's lots of reasons why people don't like that. It doesn't matter. You know, it seems to, that it's important to Jack. But, but Bitcoin is also, and I'm going to get in trouble with a lot of crypto people who care, um, Bitcoin is also kind of the... You know, it's the uh, it's the it's the train that runs on coal. You got to shovel that electricity in it, um, and it, it's you know it it chugs along, um, and it's a big machine. Um, so, for consumer payments, you might not be able to get the uh, sort of transaction speed and transaction volume that you really want in order to power. A traditional economy uh which is what lightning the lightning network solves it rides the bitcoin rails but it creates kind of little portals uh between units of time uh, between different blocks uh and essentially like batches and groups and moves transactions around and scales the bitcoin network to to do more payments i'll say one last thing about it and then stop um Bitcoin's quite different from computational blockchains, so blockchains that can be programmed and that can run software. And that's things like Ethereum, Polygon, uh, Near, Solana, a bunch of others, which is another step change, like running software that is, you know, financial software, market software, uh, e-commerce software, uh, art software, whatever. Um, and so the, the general purpose blockchains uh, that, that, that are computational are much more flexible. Um, and that's where most of the innovation has been, I think in the last couple of years. Um, but at the same time, there's a lot more venture capital activity there. Uh, you know, Andreessen keeps investing into companies that build blockchain projects, you know, and I think Jack has an allergy, uh, to venture capitalists. And I think that's another motivation for his focus on Bitcoin.
0: An allergy to venture capitalists, that's a very uh, uh, subtle and polite way of putting uh, what's been happening on Twitter over the last uh, couple of months. But no, that that's, I think, a great explanation and um, certainly taught me a lot as we were just kind of walking through that. Um, we're almost out of time. And so as has become a bit of a tradition on FinTech Recap, uh, we have a little segment we like to do at the end called Can't Let It Go. And the purpose of this is to just give each of us uh, a little bit of space, a little bit of understanding to be able to share or potentially rant about a interesting sort of uh fintech adjacent or crypto adjacent topic that uh, popped on our radars over the last month or so that we just kind of can't get out of our heads. And sometimes these are a little silly. Sometimes they're sort of profoundly confusing. Um, Jason, I think since you sort of invented this segment, I'm going to give you the first go. Give us your quick can't let it go topic.
1: I need to caveat. I did not, uh, I did not invent. I just blatantly stole it from uh, NPR. Um, who who does it on their politics podcast? And a, a good friend of mine is actually a reporter for them, so I borrowed the idea. Um, but I digress. My uh, can't let it go. Uh, as an amateur uh, fintech newsletter writer, I get all kinds of unsolicited PR pitches, uh, and one of the ones that landed in my inbox this week was for a company. Doing loans uh, against NFTs, non fungible tokens. And on the one hand, like this shouldn't be surprising, right? Like, what is the difference between, you know, an NFT versus Bitcoin or Ethereum or any other cryptocurrency? Obviously, they're supposed to be unique, thus, the non fungible portion of uh, the name, but it's, you know, a digital asset. And why should you not be able to use that as collateral to take out a loan? On the other hand, I think if you pause to explain. Like the mechanics of what is actually happening there to um, somebody who doesn't spend, you know, ninety percent of their time thinking about this ecosystem the way we do. That, like, yes, you can use a picture uh, of a pixelated uh, monkey uh, and borrow money against that. Uh, I think they would be thoroughly confused uh, and/or just like concerned about the state of the financial system, maybe rightly so. Um, So yeah, not any big uh, in-depth analysis there, but that was my like, huh, like this is the logical direction that things are going right now. But part of me wonders like, It feels like this could turn out really badly uh, for some some lenders uh, lending actual US dollars against uh, some NFTs that may have been pumped up in wash sales or other uh, kinds of fraudulent trading. So I will keep my eye on this unnamed startup to protect their identity and uh, let you guys know uh, how how their loan book does.
0: Excellent. Okay. That was an excellent, excellent one. Uh, Lex, I'm going to let you go next. What's your can't let it go topic?
1: Um.
2: I'm gonna go. I'm I'm gonna riff on that one a little bit and connect it to something I've been thinking about uh, around the word wallet. Uh, and you know, we we use all these metaphors for this is my digital wallet, you know. And then, well, what's the difference between the part of the iPhone where you store your cards, which is sort of like your digital wallet, versus like your neobank app? um that shows you your balance and your payments in it and sort of like your digital bank and then a payment experience like Venmo or PayPal which is sort of also your wallet um and then there's the crypto wallet which is the thing that stores the keys so that to to your addresses on the blockchain so you can kind of like log in and open your accounts uh in some particular blockchain and it's it's this imprecision around the word wallet that just like bugs me so much um and i've been thinking about a new metaphor for crypto wallets which um kind of clicked a bunch of things for me and the metaphor is of an inventory rather than a wallet you know so like whereas in the real world you might have a wallet and you put money in it um and maybe some cards in sort of this new digital world, you can have uh, an inventory rather than a wallet. And in the inventory are your money, your cards, your investments, but also like your virtual house and your silly hat and your overpriced uh, monkey avatars, you know, and a bunch of uh, uh, digital art that you've collected. And it becomes this kind of magical Dungeons and Dragons inventory uh, full of the random things that you've collected across the world and that also connects to the idea of identity cuz like all of the things that are in your inventory have a history and that collected history weaves together into into who you are so um a little bit of semantics in there but i do think there's also an insight
0: no i love that um yeah i it's funny cuz whenever i log into my <clears throat> crypto wallets i i'm always struck by the fact that yeah there's my Balances for various uh, currencies, but like there's my crypto Coven Witch sitting right next to them, and that's not a wallet in the traditional sense. So I I love that as an analogy, and um, you pick the right podcast to rant about terminology and etymology. This is this is the right place for you. So um, thank you for that one. I will end with a profoundly silly one, which is. Um, I've been writing a lot about customer acquisition in fintech and just sort of what happens when you pour billions of dollars into a relatively narrow set of acquisition channels and sort of how creative companies get to try to outcompete each other for get, acquiring new customers. And um, the most sort of silly and slash interesting one that I've seen lately is fortune cookie advertising. This is apparently a real thing. Um, there's a company called Open Fortune, uh, which controls about 90% of the... The fortune cookie market, which is a strange thing to say. Um, And they can put advertising inside of fortune cookies and allow you to both, uh, as a sponsor, write the fortune on one side of the cookie uh, fortune wrapper and on the other side, put a small ad for your business. And I swear, over the last six months, I've gotten. Half a dozen different uh, fintech or crypto companies that have uh, advertised to me through the uh, new fortune cookie advertising customer acquisition channel. So I don't know if this is going to continue. I don't know if this is some weird outgrowth of all the money that's been flowing into uh, fintech and crypto over the last couple of years. But I do have a rant on this particular subject, which is the last fortune that I got that had a sort of fintech advertisement on it uh, was actually yesterday. And it was from FTX, the crypto trading platform. And the um, fortune was, let's get that bread today, which was very funny and very engaging and definitely made me turn around to see who had written it. And yet at the same time, I can't let go of the fact that let's get that bread today is not a fortune. That is at best a vague motivational statement. And so my request to all of the fintech and crypto companies out there is, if you are going to take advantage of this new channel, please write actual fortunes that relate to what you do. Do not slip into just general marketing copy or motivational statements. So with I think that, the real
1: question is, is uh, you know how did one company get to control 90% of the fortune cookie market? And why is there not a DOJ inquiry into this? <laughs>
0: <laughs> Jason, I, it's taking all of my energy to not write a 10,000 word investigative report on this exact topic, because I am utterly fascinated with the open fortune monopoly And I want to know so much more about it, but it would literally destroy all of my productivity to dive into that topic.
2: I I think we should, um, I think it's time for a DAO to crowdfund uh, money to buy out this fortune cookie monopoly and give it back to the people.
0: Oh my God. (laughs) I love that so much. All right. Well, all right. You heard it here first. You will be seeing a new Twitter account. Uh, The sort of semantic that we'll use is the. two cookie emojis, uh, with a comma in between. So when you start to see that floating around, you'll know the source of it and where it came from. That is an amazing idea and something that will leave everyone to ponder. Um, Jason, Lex, thank you both so much for joining me. Uh, this was a really fun conversation. Thanks for having us.